Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news shortly, and of course, our former ITN journalist turned punter Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Then, after exploding out of the blocks with 10 goals in an undefeated start to the season after three rounds, Adelaide United came back to earth in round four against the Sydney FC outfit Smarting following the sacking of favourite son Steve Corica. Fast forward through the international break. A normal service resumed as the Reds faced a tricky assignment against Western United in Ballarat and came through with flying colours in what was, as it's becoming known, the first leg of the Nestri Irinkunda victory tour. It's been a while, but we'll chat to the man in charge at Hindmarsh, Carl Viet, to get a sense of the vibe in what's been a successful camp so far this season. Now, on Tuesday last week, Premier League clubs voted against the proposal to temporarily ban loans of players between clubs that share the same ownership. A very complex story here. They also voted against tougher rules on clubs doing sponsorship deals with companies that have ownership links with them. It just sort of makes your brain fry. Now, both changes had been proposed by the Premier League and were rejected. Now, that doesn't happen very often. So to try and make sense of it all, we're going to have back on the show one of the world's foremost authorities on the economics of the game, Kieran Maguire from the Price of Football podcast. Edge, we've just got to pick something to start with because you could have 50 lead topics every week, couldn't you? Yeah, what about Tony Gustafsson? I'll tell you what, um, do you think the Swedish newspaper Sportbladet decided that it needed to increase its circulation in Australia because it's dropped a bit of a bombshell over the weekend, didn't it, Rob? Well, it said it that uh, Tony Gustafsson had been interviewed for the vacant Swedish uh, men's team position. Um Jan Anderson um, uh, is believed to be moving on, and uh, albeit um, that's created quite a, a few waves in Australian football circles. And now, if, if Willem van Denderen was listening over there in the Netherlands and, and he was laughing his head off as you've yet again got your big black bowling ball and knocked over all my pins as I've studiously prepared my news report for the week and you've just hit them with a strike edge. So you've said it all. Now, I'm going to ask you before we welcome Derek to the show, you said, is it a slow news week? But it's been picked up everywhere else. Now, when Football Australia acknowledged this and put out their own press release, um, he was talked about for the American job as well. Is this a case of where there's smoke, there's fire? Oh, there has to be, doesn't there? Because obviously he's contracted to the end of the Olympic Games. That was the original deal. He would take the Matildas to a home World Cup and the Olympic Games in France. So, uh, you know, any coach in their right mind will be thinking, what's next? And, I mean, his stocks have been rising. Um, best ever performance is for the Matildas at the Olympic Games, best ever performance for the Matildas at a World Cup. He's, he's done ex- ex- extremely well, despite some times where he's copped a bit of criticism. So you'd have to say where well, there's smoke this far. I know that he has... Um, issued a statement saying that uh, his commitment is to Australia. But, um, yeah, I I imagine there's quite a bit in this new story, Rob. Yes, I think um, there is. And I think we will see him leave um, in the not-too-far-distant future. And uh, I think Football Australia better get them ducks in a row as to who is going to replace him in the medium term. That's my prediction. Now, as Derek sort of sits there patiently, I'm about to come to him momentarily because the Premier League table shifted over the weekend after Liverpool snatched a draw at the Etihad 
allowing Arsenal to claim top spot. I'm sure you guys were very grateful for that with that last-minute winner over Brentford that was substitute Kai Havertz, who, you know, he hasn't settled in uh, as quickly as uh, as I think most Arsenal fans would have liked. And Mikel Arteta was very happy with him after the game. Uh, across the, the round of football, reality has come home and it has come home with a bang for Ange Postacoglu. 2-1 loss. Son Heung-min, a hat-trick of offside goals against Aston Villa. That sees them drop out of the top four and replaced by that very team that they beat. Now, uh, they head to City next week. That is going to be a tough round of football now. Meanwhile, Manchester United headed up down to uh, Everton and, uh, you know, they were just desperate to regroup after the points docking, but uh, the Red Devils added insult to injury with a 3-0 result, Derek. Now, you start with whatever angle that I've just delivered to you that you want to, but uh, I suspect it's going to be a, a, an Arsenal one. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've covered most of the main storylines there. Uh, most recent, yeah, uh, Everton still struggling with overheads, I see. Um, mm-hmm. That's... Uh, Clearly, yes. there probably one of the goals of the goals of the goal of the season has just been scored from Ganacho. Amazing strike, not dissimilar to Wayne Rooney's similar efforts um, against Manchester City, uh, but this was an amazing goal from an emerging talent, and that puts Manchester United up uh, into fourth. They are the they are the the form team in the Premier League, believe it or not. So, for a club that's in crisis, you know this is a pretty good crisis for United to be having. And you mentioned Aston Villa. Aston Villa are now two points off the top. So, you know, if uh, Tottenham were in the title conversation a few weeks ago, I think it would be rude of us not to say that Villa are now in the mix for the, for the title. Yes, they've got some big games coming up against Manchester City and Arsenal. Come through those with some points and then all of a sudden they're uh, they're in, in, a, in a good spot. And yes, of course, Rob, uh, the uh, City-Liverpool sort of draw not the most, not the best game um, of football, but yes, it did well for Arsenal. Arsenal snuck in with a last-minute winner, and God, if Kai Havertz had missed that, I mean, I honestly think that was his career that header yeah. with Arsenal. That was the career, and it wasn't a great header, it wasn't exactly a bullet. It kind of almost he almost apologetically headed it down and through the goalkeeper's legs. But I think if he'd missed that, and Arsenal had missed the chance to grab the three points at the end there, I, I couldn't have really seen a short-term way back for him so look the, the mix is interesting at the top of the Premier League another fantastic weekend of fixtures yeah no it sure is and uh, just as a pure football fan it's just, it's just a, a ripping title race that we've got on our hands no matter uh uh, how you describe it. So in domestic news, Western City Wanderers took the bragging rights of the Sydney Derby after a 1-0 win over their crosstown rivals, sending them to the top of the table. On the other end of the spectrum, Western United struggles continued as they were handed a 3-1 loss at home at the hands of Nestor and Corinders Adelaide United. And we're going to talk to Carl Viet very, very soon, the men in charge of the guys who are well doing really, really well um, and uh, probably expectedly, but, um, but bounced back nicely from uh, that uh, hammering that they suffered at the end of Sydney uh, last week after the sacking of Steve Corica. Now, in the A-League women's, Melbourne City remain undefeated after a 3-2 win over Sydney FC, keeping them at the top of the table, three points ahead of Perth Glory, who are in second place after they suffered their first loss of the season at the hands of Wellington Phoenix. Canberra United's poor start, so much from my prediction that they were going to win it, to the season continued as they lost in a thriller 4-3 to Newcastle and uh, yet to claim their first win of the season. Now, we're going to talk about Terry Venables at length, um, 
during the course of the show and stoppage time as well because, uh, you know, what, what a figure that he was. But uh, as we all know now, after a long illness, he passed away uh, in the last few days at the age of 80. He led the national side, the national English side to the European Championship semi-finals in 1996 after winning trophies at club level with Barcelona and Spurs. The passing of Venables was announced in a statement by his family to British, British media saying he died on Saturday. Now, Derek, um, there's just so much more to tell about uh, about Terry Venables. He was a, he was a great player in his own right uh, for Chelsea and then and then Spurs. Uh, he uh, he was a colourful manager. But if there was a a, a person who uh, who could be uh, equated to the only fools and horses. Uh, uh, the the man who who we know and love on this show and occasionally refer to you as Del Boy Del, Terry Venables would be the Del Boy of football, wouldn't he? Certainly, personality wise, uh, an East Ender uh, from Dagenham, I believe, uh, over there in East London. And yeah, look, obviously his business dealings, his wheel dealings, uh, curtailed what was a very promising England manager stint. And you know, England fans romanticized this period a lot under Terry Venables. It was the uh, the Euro 96, the home tournament. England obviously had beaten the Scots with that magic Gaza goal, the, 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 the 4-1 thumping of the Dutch. And uh, then obviously they got through to the semi-final against uh, Germany. And this England team provided a lot of what uh, the previous England team weren't supplying under uh, Graham Taylor and others which was entertainment so he brought he definitely brought uh, you know the entertainment back to English football he you know nearly ripped himself into um into folklore you know even more folklore there but yeah the people still look back on that era that team and yes that you know I actually think he is for a former Spurs manager there's a lot of Ange vibes about him because he is he is a vibes manager like is in yes he's progressive he's ahead of the curve and apparently would have been a great manager in in the modern game but he was all about just making the team feel really good which is what Ange Postecoglou has done everywhere he has gone so I don't think that's a a bad comparison either um yeah you're right he he uh, was a a fantastic player won a lot of stuff um home and overseas with uh with Barcelona as a manager iconic for England and uh, yeah he will be sadly missed and Edge and I have uh, got him scheduled on our slate for stoppage time a little later on in the week uh, because, uh, yeah, there's a lot more just to chat about, reflect on and talk about, um, not only from uh, his uh, his um, his career on the continent but uh, and, and throughout England uh, as well, but, um, but his time with Australia and most famously the 1997 match at the MCG against Iran, which we all try to forget but never can because it's seared in our brains. Now, former soccer captain Lucas Neal has broken his silence after being acquitted of a charge related to his bankruptcy. In 2016, Neal was declared bankrupt in the United Kingdom after reports of a number of failed investments despite earning millions from his football career. The former Premier League star ended up in the Preston Crown Court due to a charge relating to his failure to declare money he wasn't aware he had which could have led to a three-year prison sentence. Edge, um, is it time for all to be forgiven with Lucas Neal? I mean, if, if you went through what he went through, surely we've got to forgive a lot of his, uh, um, you know, his behaviour about um, going, uh, you know, going dark and just missing in action. Um, that that'd be heartbreaking to have had a career like that and to, and just to lose it all through a series of uh, bad bad choices. 
I don't think we need to forgive him. I think he's just been through a very traumatic experience. I just mean because we, we, we wanted to hear from him. I mean, he was a decorated Australian football captain uh, throughout World Cups. And, and and when we wanted to hear from him over the course of successive World Cups, he, he was just nowhere to be found. I guess that's that's the the the, um, uh, the knock on him. Yeah, that's true. But um, I'd say now that this is uh, concluded, that sort of the process has been through and Lucas has uh, spoken, hopefully that breaks the ice and we can see and hear a little bit more from Lucas. I mean, what's really interesting is that his oldest son is a, is a key target for Brad Maloney, who's the young uh, Joey's coach, the, uh, the young Socceroos, the Joey's. Uh, he's targeted Lucas's oldest son to play for Australia, who can also play for England because of his mother. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if Lucas's son is involved in the Australian national team set up, albeit at a junior level, whether we get to see and hear a bit more from Lucas. He is a great uh, Socceroo. He's a fantastic Socceroos captain. Who could forget um, the impressive performances in that period from 2005 to 2014, thereabouts. Um, and, yeah, it, it's uh, terribly sad what's happened. I hope he's okay. And, I mean, I don't think the public need to forgive him. It would be great for the public to embrace him and, in a similar way that we've embraced Mark Bosnich, who had all those off-field mm. troubles with drugs and financials as well. You know, Bos has well and truly been welcomed back into the Australian football community, and I expect Lucas would would as well, Rob. Yeah, and I think that's pretty well said and a pretty good um, comparison to the to uh, um, to uh, to Bozza as well. If um, you know, but but uh, you do have to come out and make a, a bit of an effort. He doesn't necessarily have to sort of jump into the middle of a broadcasting career, but to be honest, that's probably where an income um, um, it may may well exist for him. So good luck, Lucas Neal. Um, we hope you uh, are doing better and uh, and come out uh, from the wilderness and take your rightful place um, in the uh, the uh, the landscape of Australian football. Now, Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. You can join the Green and Gold Army in Qatar to support the Socceroos at the AFC Asian Cup. We've been talking about early bird packages for a while. They're out now. Uh, they are great value and include 14 nights, five-star accommodation, seven matches, all ground transport, four huge events, tourism, cultural activity, and more edge. I mean, how could you jam-pack more into a 14-day trip? ggaarmy.com.au to book today. Yeah, ggaarmy.com, Rob. We'll wrap it up quickly. Uh, um, our soccer is Oli Roos returned from their international duty and a great story. Marco Tilio's backed up his solid under-23s performance with his Celtic debut. That was uh, excellent news to see because he's had a bit of a wobbly start and the Matildas have suffered a blow with the trio. Mackenzie Arnold, Charlotte Grant and Holly McNamara are all ruled out of the uh, the November-December FIFA Women's International window due to injury. Tony Gustafsson has named Remy Seamson, Alex Chidiak back in the squad now after being left out and Ijada Wyman to replace the trio in the 23 three-player training camp squad. Okay, after the break, we're going to talk to the manager of Adelaide United. They've had an excellent start to the season. Uh, three, um, uh, well, two wins and a draw to, to get started. Then they were thumped by Sydney and bounced back against Western United over the weekend. Former soccer Carl Vert's in charge there. He's got Nestri and Kunda till the end of the season. We'll hear all about it when we talk to him next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. 
Like everyone else in the media, we do our predictions before the season, who's going to do well, who's not. But one thing we didn't predict, even though we did think that Adelaide United were going to go pretty well, we didn't predict that they'd score 10 goals in their opening three games and and have uh, three absolutely convincing uh, matches, even though that third against Melbourne victory was a draw. They really were good value for that draw in Melbourne. But then they got a reality check against Sydney, albeit as often happens after the sacking of, of a coach, their favourite son, obviously, Steve Corriger. But they bounced back in fine style over Western United in Ballarat over the weekend. And the man in charge of Adelaide United, who's steering the ship there in front of all of the fans at Hindmarsh and probably not as many in Ballarat over the weekend, is Carl Vett. And we welcome him back to the show. How are you, Carl? Yeah, good, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's great to talk to you, mate. It's great. Look, there's one thing we, we love uh, about... Um, Amongst the many things we love about football in Adelaide is is the fact that um, Cooper Stadium, Hindmarsh, as uh, many of us remember it, uh, is a, is just a heaving football stadium. As a person who had a long career both in Australia and uh, and in the UK as well, is that something that that you really enjoy as a football person getting to to play in front of those those jumping home crowds? Yeah, most definitely. I think um, you know I, I know. A lot of um, players that come and play at um, Adelaide as well, they they just enjoy it so much because of the atmosphere. You know, it's uh, a proper, you know, um, soccer stadium. You know, the crowd is, um, you know, right next to you. And the atmosphere, you know, in the stadium is, is electric. Mm. And we're going to talk about this, you know, at length in, in other parts of our program, uh, Carl. But, um, you know, I do contrast that with um, with the weekend. Um, it, it can't be uh, observed and, and, and allowed to pass without notice that um, despite their best effort, uh, your opponent on the weekend couldn't draw a crowd in a, in a regional centre. I mean, is, is that a challenge for you to lift a team that, that plays in front of, uh, a, you know, a passionate football crowd one minute and then they're playing in front of, well, let's be polite, a, a very small crowd the next? Yeah, I, I suppose it is difficult maybe for the, for the players, you know, for both sets of, of teams. Because um, as you said, there's, there's many occasions, you know, when we've played at home that... Um, you know, the, the support got behind us and, and it lifts the players. You know, I think it's, um, you know, everyone says that when they play in front of their home supporters, you get a lift and it was a little bit different. You know, as you said, yes, they were playing on a AFL oval, so it wasn't, um, yeah, you could hear, you know, standing on the sideline, you could hear, you know, every word that was being said on the pitch and, um, and you know, it was easier for me to get some information across to, um, to the players as well. Yeah, I guess there's um, some unintended consequences, but uh, these are all issues that will, uh, in the fullness of time, work out in in the A League. Um, they're challenges. It's the arm wrestle of uh, of some clubs having great strength and backing, and others that are trying to build it. So we'll watch that as we come. The national second tier has just emerged, but but on to football. Um, some have dubbed this the uh, the Nestor and Kunda victory tour. Um, t- tell us what goes into managing a young player, 17 years old. He's just signed the contract of his life. Uh, um, he's going to continue to play in the domestic competition for your club. H- how do you go about keeping his feet on the ground for an entire season so he can continue to deliver um, as he did uh, as a provider over, over um, the course of the 90 minutes in that game against Western United? Yeah, look, it, you know, it's a difficult one for for all of our young players. Um, you know, we've got quite a few in the club, and as you said, for Nesta, there's there's a lot of um, baggage that comes with, with Nesta. Unfortunately, he's you know the media and the supporters want a lot of 
a lot of, of him and expect a lot from him. And it's a lot to carry for such a young um, young player. Um, and, you know, the expectations that we have, that I have on Nesta, is very different to the expectations that I have, you know, on a Ben Halloran. Um, and it's important um, that, you know, I, I still let him be a 17-year-old kid um, and, and develop. Yes, we... As I said, the expectations are a little bit different on Nestor, and it's about um, us guiding him to work out what's best for him to be able to get the best out of himself. Um, you know, we um, want him to be a, a professional player, and he's learning. You know what he needs to do to be to become a professional to give himself the best chance to play in in Europe when he goes. Carl. Um... Just take us through how you prepared for the match against Western United because you, you came off the heavy defeat to Sydney, which was a little unexpected because you'd started the season so well. Just how did you build up to the Western United uh, match and how much was the rebound? How much did you expect your players to respond to that heavy loss against Sydney and, and how much of a focus was redemption in leading up to Western United? Yeah, well, it wasn't about redemption. It was more about... Um, us being true to ourselves and um, playing the football, you know, when we play the, the type of football that we want to play, what it, what that actually looks like to the players. Um, and, you know, we just reinforced um, when we're good and what that looks like. Um, and, you know, cause as you said, the Sydney game, we knew Sydney coming out, you know, with, um, you know, a new coach, you always get that little bounce. And, and we knew that first 15, 20 minutes was going to be very critical in that game. And, now, unfortunately, we made a couple of errors in that first 15, 20 minutes and they conceded a couple of goals and then it's, you know, very difficult to to get back from that. Um, but, you know, in saying that, you know, the boys responded well. They they know they let themselves down and and they responded well on the weekend. You know, the desperation that we want from our, from our, from our team was clearly evident on in the game um, yesterday. And Carl, you mentioned Ben Heller in, uh, in a previous answer to Rob. Have you asked more of Ben to shoulder more responsibility since the departure of Craig Goodwin? Have you uh, personally sort of asked him to shoulder a little bit more in the group? Um, not per- not personally, no. Ben's in our leadership group, so that comes, you know, being in the leadership group comes with our extra responsibility. Um but you know, as I said, you know we have a different expectation from our senior players, and and they're well aware that we, you know we have a a lot of young players in our squad, and you know and they have and they've taken that responsibility as well. It's um, and that's a, a credit to the to the senior players that we have in the group that they are on the journey with us to to develop these young players, um, and they should take um, you know they should take some great pride out of. Um, their development and and the success that young players are having at the club because it's you know that was, a lot of that development wouldn't come without the the buy-in from our senior players. Yeah, he's been fabulous for you since he returned to Adelaide. Ben has, and uh, I mean, he, he really set the tone in early in the match against Western United. What about Joe Gauchi? Um, we've we've obviously followed him closely over the last uh, couple of seasons, and he's now um, on. You know, he's he's now a, a regular in terms of discussion points for the national team. But can you just tell us how important Joe's form's been for you? And um, and again on the weekend, he made I thought he made two very important saves. Yeah, look, Joe's, um, you know, if you, any young player, and then Joe is still a young player, you know, he's still, um, only just turned 23 himself. Um, 
for any young player that comes into the club. You know, we're talking in our youth program. They only have to see um, Joe Gouch. He's the first one to training. Um, he's work, he does so much extra work on his game um, and on his body as well and how he prepares and, and for a game and how he recovers after a game. And they um, just have to look to see what he does and and see um, if you put the work in, you're going to get the rewards. And his performances you know, in the last 18 months have been outstanding. Um, as you said yesterday, I thought he was outstanding again yesterday. And he has been all season. Um, and, you know, and that's because he, he works harder than anyone else in the group. And that's what you get. If you put the, if you put the work in, you get those, those performances. Carl, I want to segue to a different topic for a moment before I hand back to Rob. Is obviously um, uh, today as we record the podcast, the news came through that Terry Venables, um, obviously a very significant figure in international football, or English football and Australian football, passed away. You were in and around the Socceroos set up uh, when Terry was coach. Have you got any personal reflections or experience with Terry that you can share with us. It's been a day that uh, a lot of luminaries in world football have shared some stories about Terry. Um, have you got any memories you can share with us? Yeah, I'm, I suppose, you know, he was um, you know, very closely got us back to a World Cup. If it, and I, I believe if that, um, we didn't have that disruption in the game, um, Australia would have qualified for that World Cup. Um, so yeah, he did a lot for Australian football. Um, I only ever um, was involved in his first sort of um, camp, um, so I can't really um, say much more than that. But the first that little bit of contact that I did have with him, yeah, he was um, a very open guy and and willing to discuss and 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 trying and develop and get the best out of the Australian players. And before we let you go, Carl, uh, a guy who's at the other end of his football career, managerial career, that is Milo Sturjovski. You've got the MacArthur Bulls this weekend. Uh, uh, they they've been pretty good value, um, uh, and um, and uh, Milo has has started to, to get a, a pretty consistent tune out of them since uh, since Dwight York's. Uh, pretty vocal departure. I mean, they're, they're only two points off the top of the ladder, one behind you. This is a, you know, early season match. Uh, it's just six rounds in, but uh, but you must be uh, expecting that, that that there'll be uh, uh, a, a pretty fired up um, home team that you'll that you'll be uh, facing in, in your second match on the road. Yeah, most definitely. As you said, Dave, um, I suppose they might have surprised a few people in the media that how well they're doing, but you know they've got some very um, high quality players in that team, um, and you can see how dangerous they are going forward. The amount of goals they've already scored this year, and they're not conceding many goals as well. So uh, they're a very well-rounded team, and you know you're going to need to be at your best to to get something. Um, you know at their at their game at their home ground. Yeah, excellent. All right, Carl. Well, mate, look, thanks again for, for joining us on Box to Box. You're always generous with your time. Uh, excellent start to the season for Adelaide United, and uh, and uh, the the vibe that we're sort of getting is that um, they'll be one of the the teams that uh, are there when uh, the pointy end of the season comes about, mate. So uh, we wish you all the best, and no doubt we'll talk to you before the, the season's out. No worries. Thanks, guys.
excellent Carl Veet manager of Adelaide United sitting just off the top of the ladder and uh, a brilliant start to the season for them. Okay, so flipping to an entirely different subject after the break, we're going to talk to Kieran Maguire from the Price of Football podcast. We've had him on on a few occasions over the journey and there is no better person to break down the, the complex uh nature of football finances when you see a story and you can't quite make head nor tail of the detail of it. The one that we really want to talk to him about is this uh, Premier League club's vote against the proposal to temporarily ban loans of players between clubs. And it's not very often that the Premier League puts up a, uh, a, a, a proposal that just gets knocked down universally. So we're going to find out uh, just how that came about from Kieran and, and uh, maybe a few other topics uh, on the agenda. That's next on box to box Hey, Ed, you've been back in Australia for a week now. You can hear the music in the background. Have you made Woo-hoo. your pilgrimage to Chemist Warehouse yet? Yes, I've done that, Rob. I've been down there with the, filled up the little the little uh, basket of goodies and my medical pack is uh, well and surely replenished. Excellent. Well, I'm going to get down there and get prepared for the festive season and get myself some of the Masashi fat metabolizer with carnitine, 60 capsules, $18.99. I missed that one. I need to go back. Oh, well, I'll get you some while I'm there, mate. And then, because you're going to do a lot of exercise when you're home, I know you like to work out, the INC Intra Workout Plus, 300 grams, $24.49. Good deal, that one. It sounds like a good deal. And uh, and Adam, I know Adam Maloney, who uh, is producing, panelling and editing the whole show. He's always been the workout king. He loves a bit of Bondi Protein Co-Vegan. Doesn't really all look at the guns coming up. If you could see exactly what I'd see, you'd be just in awe. Arnold Schwarzenegger style. But he doesn't need the Slimit Blend, the one kilo range, two for 70. Maybe you and I can get one of those each. I need that one. I need that one. I think we do. Now, remember, in addition to visiting your local Chemist Warehouse store, you can order online and click and collect to save time. Or choose fast delivery for same-day home delivery. T's and C's and charges may apply. You can get that now that you're not in Bangkok anymore, Rich. I certainly can. Chemist Warehouse, great savings every single day. Box to box. For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, as I said off the top of the show, there's just sometimes you just want to watch football, but sometimes you can't because very complex stories around the business of football come into play. And if you want to watch the game and understand the context that games and competitions are being played in, then you owe it to yourself to make some sense around the business of football. And there's no one that does it better than our next guest. The topic we, we've invited him on to discuss is the the one that everyone would have seen during the week where the Premier League clubs voted against a proposal to temporarily ban loans of players between clubs that share the same ownership. Now, it sounds pretty simple. Um, they also voted against tougher rules on clubs doing sponsorship deals with companies that have ownership links with. Now, that's getting more complex. Now, both changes were proposed by the Premier League, but rejected, which doesn't happen very often. It gets more complex as you roll it through. So to try and make sense of it all, Kira Maguire from the Price of Football podcast and Liverpool University, no less, joins us again. How are you, Kieran? All good. As a Brighton fan, uh, I'm still recovering from the weekend. So, yeah, football has that effect on you in life. 
Oh, Roberto to Serbi, how well is he going? Very excited at the end of that. You know, very often you see a manager just sprint onto the pitch. So congratulations to you, mate, uh, um, for, for that result. But, uh, you know, there's a few people sort of, uh, you know, knuckling their brains trying to make some sense of all this. C- c- could you give us the, the dummy's guide to, to what I just described? Um, in terms of the Premier League, in order to get a change of rules, you need a two-thirds majority. So you need 14 clubs to vote in favour. Now, historically, the Premier League has only tended to ask things to go to a formal vote when it was convinced that uh, any proposals would get passed. What we've seen over the course of, sort of since Super League collapse and also the, the arrival of, of Newcastle United as a disruptor is that the, the somewhat false idea of all the Premier League clubs acting together has been exposed to what it is. Normally, you had the big six clubs threatening to leave, threatening to set up a Super League, threatening this, that and the other, unless they got their way, and the other clubs tended to cave in. Now, it, it's, it, it's a free-for-all. So... There's, there's no love lost between individual clubs because we saw seven or eight clubs try to gang up on Manchester City with regards to their financial issues because they thought, well, yeah, Manchester City starting off the season with 25 points gives us a chance of winning the Premier League. We've seen clubs now trying to gang up on Everton. And we also saw when Newcastle United were acquired by the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, the... Uh, people call it a cosy cartel. It's, it's not particularly cosy because even the clubs in the cartel don't like each other. Um, the the big six who have had a monopoly on places in the Champions League, and, and that is worth uh, yeah, that, that's worth up to 120 million sterling a year. Um, they suddenly saw a potential rival for the four places, so they've tried to set up a series of rules which will make it more difficult for Everton. In addition to that, what we are seeing is the rise of the multi-club ownership model and the multi-sport ownership model in the Premier League. So now some clubs, I mean Chelsea, for example, they voted against the rules because Todd Bowley is interested in building up a portfolio of clubs. Manchester City is a portfolio of clubs. So Trying to find clubs with identical interests is very difficult, and that's why we've got the fragmented position that we're in today. Yeah, that's that's uh, right, Kieran. And it, you've mentioned it before. It isn't just the kind of Saudi or the petro dollars, is it? Like, it's not just Todd Bowley. It's that American investor model in general. Uh, it is one to to own multiple clubs within different codes, but also within. The same within the same code as well and and this the genie's out of the bottle now isn't it i mean you, the uh premier league aren't going to stuff a call back in and say no you can only own one club can they no they, they can't it's, it's always been a very fragile alliance and i think if you take a look at the clubs that voted against the proposals there was burnley relatively new american owners who are looking to build up a portfolio of clubs you've got uh, newcastle because of their links to Saudi Arabia. And then, to everybody's surprise, Sheffield United uh, voted against the rules. And I was going, well, that's not a surprise, because the Sheffield United owner happens to be from Saudi Arabia. 
And uh, when it comes to Saudi Arabian politics, it's very much big brother tells little brother what to do. And therefore, uh, Sheffield United voted against. If they hadn't have done that, the, 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 the new rulings would have gone through because one of the, one of the rulings went through 13-7 and the other one was 12-8. So one of the proposals in, in respect of making it more difficult for related party transactions to go through would have, uh, would have been enshrined uh, ineffectively in, in Premier League statute. Do you think the Premier League, I suppose, really wanted to see this go or this go through? I mean, it didn't, obviously, but the Premier League is kind of founded on rampant capitalism. And when you compare it to even other European leagues in terms of uh, German ownership structure, sort of financial measures that La Liga um, have put in place uh, over clubs, including Barcelona and um, Real Madrid. I mean, is is the bind that the Premier League are in is that, on the one hand, they've got to look after all of these rampant capitalist clubs, and in a way, that's a good thing. More, uh, more money, better players, that's good for the Premier League. But on the other hand, they've got the government looking at them going, well, if you, you guys aren't going to put your house in order, we'll do it for you. Yes, the the Premier League has been opposed to the government proposals following that the fan led review into to football finance and governance. It's, it's made it very clear that it believes that um, self regulation is better. It, it believes that football is is better left to sovereign wealth funds, billionaires, hedge funds, private equity than fans having any influence over the game because as far as the owners are concerned the football clubs belong to them there's, there's an awful lot of owners of Premier League football clubs who never go to matches, you know, they, they, probably, they wouldn't even know the names of players, it is just another investment in their portfolio and they enjoy it because there's potential money to be made at the, at the exit point but also it does bring them a degree of fame and kudos that, that you wouldn't get for any other investment of, of that size. We, we talk about the Premier League being big, but it's actually a myth. I mean, Manchester United, if they are sold probably in the region of six to seven billion sterling, and, and we'd Microsoft acquire a, a games company for 10 times that amount um, a, a few weeks ago, and yet nobody talks about that deal in the same way as Manchester United. So football, it's a small industry with a very big voice. And it's that very big voice that, that is attractive to the sovereign wealth funds, to the, the nation states who, who want to uh, you know, broaden their profile in the world of sport and so on. And that actually clashes with the bottom line model that is so beloved of the likes of John Henry, the Glazers, Stan Kroenke and so on, who see uh, Premier League football clubs as, as another franchise and ideally uh, you know, a franchise in the locked-in system where there's no fear of, of losing money through failure to qualify for European competition or relegation or, or things which they consider to be irritants. And it, as we said off the top, it isn't just the multi-club scenario. It's the ways that clubs, particularly owners of clubs, get around some of the rules and regulations to do with sponsorship. So we're all familiar with Manchester City and the fact that Etihad is linked to Abu Dhabi, um, as well as the owners and Manchester City have, you know, sold sponsorship to the training ground, the concourse outside the ground, and given that to Etihad as well, created all of these, and, and to be honest, hyperinflated uh, the value of those things in order to bring more of that sponsorship money in. Newcastle were trying to do the same with the Saudi airline, 
And then we even saw with Everton in in what they've gone through recently that Guzmanov was going to try and sponsor this stadium. I mean, I don't know. At least with Etihad, I can understand because it's a consumer business. With Guzmanov, I'm not aware of any consumer business that he runs that would justify him um, sponsoring a stadium. But that's what you know, Everton were looking to circumvent the rules to say, well, yes, this is another way for us to pour money in. So, I mean, this is clearly a, a strategy, too, that is also really important to all the owners of the clubs. Yes, you know, the, the likes of Usmanov, they, they, they come from a regime where rules are something which just has to be hurdled rather than seen as a barrier. And uh, uh, for people not familiar with what's happened, um, Usmanov, uh, who was ba- who's banned from the UK for six months before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, so that's how, uh, how much in suspicion he was held by the UK government. But he had one of his companies uh, pay 35 million sterling for an option to have naming rights on a football stadium which didn't even have planning permission. And as far as the Premier League was concerned, that that was fine. That was okay. And and then you you realise that as far as some owners are concerned, um, the the financial control rules are just a mere irritant, and they employ the accountants and lawyers. And uh, you know, accountants and lawyers are now becoming as valuable as, as a decent player to some clubs because it means that they. They, they can circumvent the rules, and the Premier League is left in a position where it's effectively playing whack-a-mole you know, as, it, as it brings in a new uh, a new clause to prevent uh, circumvention X. Then the lawyers and accountants say, "Well, that's okay. We'll come up with something else." And it, it's it, it's frustration because none of us fell in love with football due to balance sheets and spreadsheets. No, that's that's um, absolutely right. I just have one final one from me. Everton have obviously had their uh, whack this week. Manchester City obviously wait in the wings. It's a very different kind of proposition. Can you explain what the difference is between the charges that Man City face versus the charges that Everton face? And is it as still as simple as going, you know, the Premier League need Manchester City more than they need Everton because ultimately they need to keep the, the big six, so to speak, happy because of this ever-looming threat of a European Super League? Right. In, in terms of the Everton case, it was a very, very specific charge, which was between 2019 and 2022, um, because there are there are financial control rules which deal with a rolling three-year period. And the accusation was that Everton had exceeded the maximum allowed financial loss. That was that was the the basis of the charge. Um, the Premier League asked a, a senior lawyer to put together an independent commission. They reviewed the evidence, and there was 40,000 documents submitted by both parties. Um, and then they came up with a ruling that they concluded that Everton had exceeded the uh, allowable losses, and therefore they were going to set a tariff. They were going to set a penalty. Everton wanted a financial penalty. The, the commission said we don't consider that to be appropriate because it doesn't act as a deterrent. If you're the richest country on the planet on a per capita basis, such as Saudi Arabia, you know, a, a 10 or 20 million fine is, is a non-issue. So therefore, they said we're going to go down the footballing route in terms of penalties, and, and they gave a 10-point deduction. In the case of Manchester City, it's a much broader issue. 
And it goes back as far as 2008, 2009. And the broad accusation made is one of misleading the Premier League in the sense that Manchester City have artificially uh, inflated the money coming into the club and they've artificially deflated the money going out of the club. So one of the accusations is that Manchester City had a manager, Roberto Mancini, and he had a contract to be the manager or the coach of Manchester City, and he earned around about two million sterling. And at the same time, he had a parallel employment contract in Abu Dhabi, where Manchester City's owners are from, which said for six days' work, we will also pay you approximately two million. Now, yeah, my view, if somebody wants to pay me two million to do six days' teaching in Abu Dhabi, yeah, I'm, just show me where I sign. But that will be done for pure self-interest, the accusation here that Manchester City were trying to do this to to keep their costs lower, their revenues higher, and because the rules are based on profit and profit is revenue less costs, it allowed Manchester City to spend more money on players to pay higher wages for the vast majority of the squad and so on, and that gave them a sporting advantage. So, I guess to get to the nub of it with Everton, um, is this an if the Premier League would ever conceive of doing this? an ambit punishment, knowing that Everton will appeal and that they've got room to manoeuvre? Um, can we expect that there will be any success with, with some of the claims in the appeal that Everton are about to uh, put forward and, and there might be some shaving of the, the total of 10 points? Or, or in your opinion, uh, are you expecting, given the, the broader picture with the, the regulatory body that the, the government is about to put in, that this is the Premier League putting their, their foot down and, and, and saying, no more, um, when we hand down a punishment, it stands and you better watch out if you're City or Chelsea because Everton, you've got no hope of uh, winning an appeal. Well, I, th- I think there, there's elements of, of everything there in, in the sense that it was noticeable that the charges against Manchester City, the 115 charges, which the club weren't aware were coming, normally there's a bit of communication between both parties. Um, those charges were levelled 48 hours before the government was making the announcement of the the white paper, the the proposed legislation. So this was the Premier League in the eyes of some saying, well, look, we we can look out, we can keep our own house in order. Here's perfect evidence. Therefore, you don't need the regulator. It's been using right wing libertarian think to try to sort of delay, deny, discredit anybody connected with the with the proposed legislation. So it's all become very political. Um, so that is certainly an issue. As far as Everton having a uh, a chance of a reduction in the points deduction, I think they have they have a fair chance because some of the uh, some of the rules that were concluded about were very technical from an accounting point of view, and I think it could be argued by Everton that there is zero evidence that they would have given Everton any form of sporting advantage in the three years. So some of the rules relate to the building of a new stadium. Well, the state, a stadium which you cannot occupy until 2025 cannot give you any sporting advantage in 2020 or 2021. So if I was a lawyer, I would be going down that particular route. Everton have admitted that they've exceeded the rules. It's now a case of, is 10 points an appropriate penalty? The Premier League were originally looking for 12. I I suspect we'll end up with with some form of adjustment. Mm, Interesting. 
it sort of felt like that, but um, it's interesting to hear you say that. Kieran, look, uh, for anybody who wants to really get their teeth into these things and 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 have without, um, uh, you know, uh, blowing too much uh, wind up your backside, mate, um, to make complex discussions sound easy to understand the price of football podcast is the place to go because not only do you explain things but you do it in a way that's a lot of fun as well and it's a really enjoyable entertaining um listen as well mate so uh, uh i i hope our listeners and i know they will have uh, learned a lot from from what you've had to say on our show but uh, if they want to learn a lot more then uh, then they should listen to yours well thanks very much yeah we we are disliked by practically the whole of the football industry, which normally means you're doing something right. Yes, exactly, mate. I have heard that uh, that description ascribed to, to people uh, in the media many, many times, so it must mean you are. Hey, uh, Kieran, thanks again, mate. We'll, uh, we'll reach out to you soon and uh, for your patience as well as, um, as we work through uh, setting up the, the conversation too, mate. All the best. Okay. Cheers, guys. All, take care. Kieran McGuire from the Price of Football podcast. Okay, uh, stick around. World Cup corner next. Derek is going to take a little spot on the bench. He's going to have an early mark today. He's got to go off and do some very important things. So Edge and I are going to bring it home. Stick around. That's all next on Box to Box. Well, 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 everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices. Everyone's going to save a dollar or two. Everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices, yeah. Oh, Edge, have you been doing any cooking since you've been back home? Yes, I got the barbecue out and uh, did some of that... Uh, Lovely olive oil and four mixed mm. peppercorn with a bit of chilli and a bit of paprika onto the pork. Nice. It was fantastic. Well done. Did you get a bit of lemon juice squeezed over it just to add that little bit of zest I always to the put end? the lemon juice on when I'm about to eat it. This gives it a okay. bit of Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, I think that that's a good addition. You don't want to put it on. That's the Greek way. Well, you don't want to put it on too early, do you? Because it can start to cook uh, the uh, the protein and you, you don't want that to happen. Well, I have my, my niece and uh, her husband down here, good Greek boy, never been to Melbourne. Can you believe that? A Greek in Australia, never been to Melbourne before? Dear so idea. I, I know, took him down to stalactites. But then I tried out a bit of lamb souvlaki on my Weber uh, smoke fire barbecue. And look, I don't know that I was quite in the league of stalactites, but once I got the oregano on and I got the four colour peppercorn mix and I got the, uh, you know, the Hoyt's Himalayan rock salt and the lemon juice at the end, he said it was pretty good. What's the, what's the statistic about stalactites that uh, I can remember off the top of my head? Um, how much lamb do they go through each week? Oh, how much lamb? I would say half a ton. Yeah, it's 900 kilos, so it's almost oh, wow. a ton every wow. week. It's a, it's a lot of lamb going around the rotisserie, Rob. Oh, That's that a lot is. of white spices on the lamb to help I, I could just watch tasty. one of those rotisseries on YouTube. And just, you know, if you're hungry, just watch it turn and salivate while you're doing it. Now, if you want to make some of that at home, that's what you need. You need the, the Greek oregano or just your plain old oregano. It'll do the job. The four-colour peppercorn mix and the salt. Now, we talk a lot about mixing a lot of spices to get flavour. That's one dish where you don't need a lot because you get the, the tzatziki and you, you make that with some uh, you know, garlic, some cucumber. I don't know where these mint in tzatziki. I'm not quite sure about that. Uh, no, there's not. No, there's not, um, but you can just make that, and, and not a lot of herbs and spices required. Now, remember to refill your empty spice jars with Hoyt's Value Packs. You'll be happy with Hoyt's. Our good friend Johnny Accardo and all of the wonderful Accardo family at Coles, Woolworths, and all good independent supermarkets. Fill those empties with Hoyt's Spices, yeah! Box to box. Can you believe it? 
Alpha Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Good chat with Kieran Maguire there. Now, Edge, uh, Derek's taken an early mark. So I, I, I'm scared when I do this to you and I just sort of hand over the new ball or the or maybe the scruffy old ball to you to, to, to come in from the uh, the picket fences. So um, what have you got up your sleeve, mate? World Cup corner style. Oh, I've got something a little special to start off with. I want to say a, a very, very big congratulations to A-League women's captain of Melbourne Victory. Her name's Kayla Morrison. She's been one of the most significant standout defenders in the entire A-League women's competition. Robin, you might be asking, what is he talking about Kayla Morrison in World Cup Corner 4? What Have is I he talking about Kayla Morrison in World Cup Corner 4? That is exactly well, what I'm... But, but you look, there's, after 400 and something episodes of this podcast, Edge, if there's one thing I've come to get used to is that you will come at me from some obscure angle at where, just when I least expect it. So... Explode. Well, the reason I'm saying that is that Kayla Morrison slipped down to the bullying city council town hall and received her Australian citizenship only a few days ago. Mm-hmm. And that's got to be a good thing for Tony Gustafsson and whoever might take over from Tony Gustafsson because she's only 27 years of age, polking horns older. And I would expect that uh, Kayla Morrison at some point is going to figure in discussions about elevating her to the Matildas in a key role in the defensive slot. So watch this space. Congratulations okay. to Aussie Kayla Morrison. All right. So now for those of, of our listeners who are listening, courtesy of Wikipedia, I'm doing my, my desktop research here. So Kayla Morrison was born in 1996. And for those who are not aware, she was born in California. She's only five foot nine. But if you come with American pedigree, it's almost sort of like a, an Argentine or a, or a Brazilian player becoming naturalised to play for Australia, isn't it, Edge? Yeah, especially in the women's game because, I mean, mm. she's done it all through the college system. So, well, she played for the Kansas Jayhawks, 83 games yeah. for them, and, uh, and, and she's been in Australia for a little while. But, um, but she, she actually went back to America, played a, um, a World Cup um, replacement contract with Portland Thorns in the National Women's Soccer League. Uh, competition recently, and she's been uh, a rock of Gibraltar for. So, what's she uh, going to give to to the Australian setup that we don't already have? Well, we have, you know, in this in the heart of defence, we've obviously got uh, uh, Claire Polkinghorne, uh, Claire Hunt, Alana Kennedy, uh, and I just think she absolutely adds another bit of um, defensive depth to that group and. Uh, on her day, she could challenge any of those players for a starting lineup in the Matildas, and um, I just think it's terribly good news that uh, we've added another, um, another very, very dependable defender who can uh, potentially play for Australia. Who knows? Um, who knows the longevity of some of uh, of Claire Polkinghorne in particular? We know Claire Hunt has only recently arrived on the scene and made a big impression. So there has been some um, talk about strengthening uh, the defensive setup in. Uh, the Matildas, and she would have to figure in discussions, you would think. So congratulations to Kayla Morrison, who's become Aussie Kayla. And who knows? You never know your luck in a big city, Rob. She might just uh, bridge the gap and play for the Matildas. 
Well, it, I mean, it, it's um, it's a serious conversation to be had right now, isn't it? That that, that the Matildas are becoming uh, an attractive proposition for players like her, who you know, to be fair, at the age of twenty seven, uh, uh, she's probably seen her opportunities pass with the US national women's side, and uh, she's lived in Australia for a while now. She first came in uh, in twenty eighteen when she played for Bulleen, and uh, and has been you know a fixture uh, for for Melbourne Victory in in recent times. So uh, a player that can hold a, a starting spot in, in that squad uh, under Jeff Hopkins is, is going to be a, a, a quality player in a quality system. So uh, when they when they have the, the carrot dangled in front of them to, to potentially uh, get into a Matilda's squad and, uh, and and be part of a rising tide, then you know perhaps other players of a similar ilk from other backgrounds consider the same options and, and put even more pressure on, on the existing setup uh, and, uh, you know, improve the, the quality of the base and and the, and the broader uh, opportunities for whether it's uh, uh, Tony Gustafsson or whoever may, you know, be the manager of the, of the team in years to come. And she's been captain of Melbourne Victory in the A-League Women's Comp for three seasons. Mm. Uh, a very good leader. So, you know, that the, mm. she comes with that experience as well. But I've got something else for us just to end with, and that is uh, former Socceroo Patrick Kiznorbo. I'll tell you mm. what, they do things differently in France. Mm. He's been stood down as the head coach of Troyes after the French League Two side fell to a 1-0 defeat over the weekend. Is there a difference uh, between being stood down and sacked, Edge? Well, in, in France there is because the club released a, a quite a – weird statement by Australian standards anyway. They said um, the leadership of the club in consultation with its owners has today notified Patrick Cosnorbo, the professional team trainer, of his suspension for a conservatory period. Mm. Now, uh, W2F, Rob, what does that mean? Mm. You'd have to dig a little deeper, and it's all to do with French labour laws. Mm. Companies must go go through a series of processes to sack an employee, a protocol that's now underway, and Cosnorbo's exit from Troy's looks inevitable. So Mm. um, that uh, Melbourne City championship winning coach, Mm. um, it seems to be a a long way away. Um, Just to... Well, Edge, the way that Melbourne City are going right now, his job might be back on offer um, in the not-too-far-distant future. No, I think Aurelio is okay until the end of the season. But um, Mm. uh, in the 39 matches that um, he coached Troy's, he had 14 draws and 22 defeats, and that means there's not a lot of wins left over, Rob. No, no. All right, well, Edge, um, great show, and um, and mate, we'll um, just uh, take uh, the bench for a couple of days and resume uh, for stoppage time later in the week. Absolutely, looking forward to that. Don't want to talk about Terry Venables in stoppage time. And to Derek, he has already jumped on the bench and uh, taken his early mark. But thank you to Derek for your contributions to the show this week and to our good friend Adam Maloney for making sure it all comes together just the way we like it. Thank you, my friend. Now, if you have a moment, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your favourite shows and make sure you subscribe to box to box Stoppage Time and Offside. Tweet us at box to box nts and follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. I'll stop saying that one day. Like us on Facebook and join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.